Amen. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn it to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's in your order of worship. Or if you don't own a Bible, as always, there are about six or so on the back table. And grab one of those. That's yours. That's our gift to you. Um, love for you to take that home with you. But you need the, the text in front of you so you know that this is not helpful thoughts from Rick, which would be not very helpful. Um, and probably not from Rick, to be honest. But All right, so... As you're turning there, the last couple of weeks, our series in Galatians, the book of Galatians we're entitled Freedom, has focused uh, more and more on one of the core doctrines of the Christian faith, namely adoption. And that is the idea that purely out of the grace of God expressing itself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that by faith in Him, we can be reconciled to God and in fact enjoy the same intimacy with the Father that He did. In other words, the doctrine of adoption tells us that we aren't just made followers of Jesus through faith, but we're made children of God through faith in Jesus. But what does it look like to be part of the family? How is it that we can be sure we are part of the family? Like Asking those questions raises the stakes, because the stakes on this particular discussion are high, right? I mean, the argument of the book of Galatians has been that there is only one way to be reconciled to God. One way to be freed from the bondage we find ourselves in, and that is through Jesus Christ. And if that means being adopted into God's family, then the stakes couldn't be higher. How do we know we're in? Uh, how, how, do we, how do we get there? Today we look at another of Paul's letters to see the signs of adoption. So if you have your place in Romans chapter 8, um, as is our habit here, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word. We'll be reading uh, Romans 8 verses 12 through 17. This is God's word to us. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, no matter what we're coming into this place with today, we ask that you would speak to us by your spirit. We come into this room bringing our stories, bringing our triumphs and our struggles. We come into this room bringing our unbelief and our fervent belief. And we need you to meet us no matter where we are in this place and, uh, and preach to us. Would you preach your gospel to us? Lord, your word tells us that faith comes by hearing and that by the word of Christ. And so, Lord, we ask Jesus that you would speak your word to us today. Produce faith in us. Let, uh, Jesus, the work that you have done and who you are come forward and let the one who speaks fall to the wayside. You alone hold the words of eternal life. So speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So this notion of family is a powerful one. Even today. In our, in our culture, we, we try and downplay that idea, especially the kind of the normative nature of the nuclear family. We want to downplay that. That's not as important, but no, you know, all that kind of stuff. And yet, we can't. There's something that draws us back to the idea, even in tw- twisted forms. I mean, th- think with me about how many of us um, spent hours, hours 
following a fictitious crime family when we're watching The Sopranos simply because of the value of loyalty in a culture of betrayal. How does that work out? And how, that, That's so enticing to us. And then there's the entire draw of many of our urban youth to gangs as a family to belong to, to gain protection, to get value. Family's not something we can just disregard and say, oh, that's not a big deal. But all families bring with them certain values, expectations, even resemblances. Should we expect the same kind of thing from the family of God? Should we you know, expect that that the family of God, that God's family should imbibe certain values, have certain expectations, even that members of it would take on certain resemblances. What is it that shows we are part of his family? That's the question. Those are the questions that we're going to take to the text today. So uh, we're going to look at this in three ways this morning. You can take that outline out if it's helpful. We're going to look at a relationship, an obligation, and an assurance. Okay, A relationship, an obligation, and an assurance. Let's begin with a relationship from slaves to sons. Look in the middle of the passage, right there at verse 15. Paul says this, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, again unto fear, but instead you received a spirit of adoption as sons, through whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, there are two contrasts going on in this verse that I want to point out that I think would be helpful for us to to grasp what Paul is saying. The first should sound familiar to you if you've been here the last few weeks, and that's the contrast between slave and son. Okay, Paul talks about it here in Romans 8. We've been talking about it in Galatians 4, so it's a common theme of his, right? And we've been looking the last two weeks in Galatians 4 that, that Paul argues that every person on the planet, every person that exists, that ever has existed, that, that, that all of us by nature exist in a kind of slavery. And that slavery is one way of describing our alienation from God, okay? That we were, we were created to be dependent, As humans, we're created, we are dependent creatures. But we were created to be dependent on God, right? To to depend on him for everything, from our our life to our breath to the the sustenance that we receive to our understanding of reality to our definition of right and wrong. Everything was meant to come from him. And we were meant to exercise his loving and just rule over creation that he made. But that's not the way it is now, and that is because... Uh, everything changed. Everything changed when we turned from him and betrayed him. That's what the Bible calls sin. When that happened, our natures changed. Now, here's what didn't change. We're still dependent. We can't change that. We will always be dependent. We, we may rage against it. We may want to be autonomous, but we can't be. We were made for that. It's like, it would be like a, it'd be like a shark deciding one day that there's more food on the land, so he wants to breathe air. Like, you, you, it just can't happen. Uh, But because we're dependent, but we're also bent towards being independent from God, now we're in bondage to dependence on anything but Him. And so Paul talks about the fact that he contrasts being slaves to being sons. Specifically, Paul says sons and not children, right? He's going to say children later. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but if you weren't here, that, that his, his wording there is important because in, in the ancient world, children did not get the inheritance. Sons did. And specifically, the eldest son got the inheritance. Now, lest we feel like Paul is suddenly being rather misogynistic, let's remember the context in which he is speaking, Okay. The radical part here in Romans, as in Galatians, when Paul says this, is the idea that God adopts both men and women as sons. 
In Paul's context, this is radically egalitarian. What he is saying is that men and women together enjoy the exact same equal relationship with God. So Paul is saying, look, you're not slaves anymore. In fact, you're sons. And the second thing that's contrasted is fear and intimacy. Paul says, you haven't received a spirit unto fear, but one of adoption that cries Abba. Now, again, I I said this a couple weeks ago, but again, bears repeating. Let's talk about fear. Why would we have existed in fear? Why would he say, you're no longer in that? Well, here, here it is. The assumption of the entire Bible, the assumption of the whole story that the Bible tells is that you and I, that we're jacked up. That something just ain't right. We know something's not right. We just don't know exactly what it is. And so long as we're stuck in our independence from God, we work to try and fix ourselves, to try and make that better with whatever, however we define what is wrong, okay? And that's where slavery comes in. If you think that your problem is, I'm not good enough, that's my problem, I'm just not good enough, then you will be in slavery to being good enough. If you think uh, your problem is you're weak and, and vulnerable, then you will be a slave to trying to get more power for yourself, to fix yourself. And here's where the fear comes in. Because the reality is, if you think you will be you will fix yourself by being moral, how do you know when you've been moral enough? If you're going to fix your situation of vulnerability by gaining more power, how do you know when you've gained enough power to keep yourself safe? If you think you're going to fix your situation of, I'm going to make myself somebody by being a success or having bankroll, how do you know when you've gotten enough to make yourself valuable? You don't. So we're committed to seeking those things, to worshiping those things, to pursuing them with a kind of religious fervor, but we never know if it's enough. It creates what I called a couple of weeks ago, a, a kind of like a psychological insecurity in us. Am I enough? Is it enough? Have I done enough? But Paul says that Christians have instead received a spirit through whom we cry, Abba. Okay, again, this is, some of you have been here, this is going to be rehashing, but that word Abba is the Aramaic word for dad, right? It, it's not... Um, it's not the word for daddy, because that would be uh, uh, like what a child would call their father. This is a, a term of endearment for an adult child, but it's still a relational term, not a formal one. And here's why this is a big deal. Because in all of the, uh, the, the literature of the ancient world, uh, all the Jewish literature, all the literature surrounding the life, uh, the life and times of Jesus, no one ever used this word in regards to God. Sure, they talked about father. I mean, Andrew read that passage from Isaiah 63 in which they talk about God being our father, but that's a formal address. This is a relational one. The only one, in fact, we know of who used this particular address of God is Jesus. And so the implication, again, being that Christians have the same intimacy with God the Father that Jesus did because of faith in him. Last thing in this, in this particular section is that word again. Paul is clear. Something has happened. A change has happened to this group of people. That they, they had a spirit of slavery unto fear. But they weren't given that again. Did you see that? He's like, you haven't been given this again. In fact, you've been given something else. Here's what that means. Our assumption is that we have to work hard to make things up to God, right? To work our way back to him. But what we have received, Paul says, is not that. It is not that spirit of slavery, of bondage, of fear. We didn't get that again. Instead of fear, we have intimacy. The intimacy and security that comes from calling God dad. Does that make sense? All right, here's where this really hits home. It's the idea of receiving. Did you notice that language? Paul talks about you haven't, 
received this. Instead, you've received this over here. At least two things are clear from this. First, you're not born into whatever he's talking about. Right? If you receive something, it didn't come to you naturally. You've received it. It's a gift. You receive gifts. Uh, you don't receive something that you're just kind of, that it's born. Uh, now, I know we have this notion in our culture that God is everybody's father. Right? In a sense, I suppose you could say that. But the way the Bible uses the term is not in terms of creation. God is everyone's father because he created them. But in terms of redemption. His fatherhood is redemptive. By nature, we're all lost. All of us. No matter how our lives look, independence from God is independence from God, whether that looks clean or messy, moral or immoral, responsible or irresponsible. All of it is equally betraying God. In other words, the Bible is really clear. Left to our own devices, we are in a state that Paul will call in verse 13, death. And by that, he doesn't just mean physical death. That wouldn't have made sense given the context. He means what Jesus said when he talked about hell, bearing the weight of our betrayal of God for all eternity. Okay? Secondly, though, and this is super important, Paul says, you received this. If you receive something, just as much as you weren't born into it, if you receive it, you also didn't make it. You didn't build it. You didn't do it. You certainly didn't earn it. And this is what is so groundbreaking about Christianity. Because you see, many of us, because of the cultural air we breathe, We have come to believe that if you believe in something called hell, then you also believe that the people who go there are not as good as you. That to believe in the doctrine of this place of of judgment also means to believe that you're better than other people and that they are going to that place because they're not as good and clean and nice as you are. And that is not Christian. Christians don't believe that at all. No matter what you may hear, okay? The Bible tells us, That this is a gift that is received, not one that is earned. We didn't earn it at all. Jesus did. Jesus lived a life of perfect dependence on God. He lived a life of intimacy with God. Loving him and loving others with all of his being. He lived in intimacy with God that I can't even sustain for a second. It was that perfect. But then Jesus died for our brokenness. That same brokenness that keeps us from that kind of Intimacy. He bore the guilt that I had earned with my betrayal of God, my seeking independence from Him. And so when we trust in Jesus instead of our particular flavor of the week to make us right, to make things right between us and God, we receive what He did. He bears our sin, we get His status before God. This is how we go from slaves to sons. That. It isn't because of what we do, it's because of what He did. He rescues, He redeems, He saves. And we have only to receive what he freely offers to those who will place their hope in him instead of in themselves. It's a relationship, but it's a relationship that is received. Okay? That's how we enter the family. But this passage is actually about far more than that. It's also about an obligation. Look at the first three verses. Paul says uh, this. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to to the flesh. Stop there because I want to talk about that for a second. That word that in the ESV is translated debtors, another way of saying that is obligation. Okay, that word is a financial term. Um, it, it, it is speaking, it, it is speaking of, the, of someone either being in debt or someone being bound to a contract. 
Okay? It is a binding arrangement. And so Paul's point is that you are not bound to the flesh. Now, when he says flesh, he doesn't mean matter. He doesn't mean, he's not talking about your bodies. This is not a, um, God doesn't like the body, right? God created us. He created our physical being. He created us called it good. He, he likes physical things. This isn't a, a, you know, spirit good, body bad type of dualism. When, when Paul says flesh, he means what he's talking about is, is a life that is characterized by independence from God. A life lived independent of God. Paul's saying, you're not bound to that anymore. You don't, in fact, have a debt to that, to keep doing it. And so he continues, for if you live according to the flesh, you're destined to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the practices of the body, you're going to live. Now, let me explain this really quick, and then I'm going to answer the question that should logically spring up in your minds. Okay? Living according to the flesh, when he says... Uh, you're not supposed to live according to the flesh anymore. Grammatically, and I know most of us wish we had just dumped that into ninth grade and never saw it again, but it's progressive, okay? What that means is, uh, what Paul is saying is, those who continually, constantly live according to the flesh, this isn't a one-off problem, this is a lifestyle characterized by that, destined to die, okay? Again, it doesn't mean physical, it means spiritual, okay? Still with me? All right, let's keep going. But Paul says, if you put to death the practices of the body by the spirit, you will live, Okay? When he talks about the practice of the body, one, one scholar defines that as like actions that express undue dependence on satisfying human appetites and ambitions. So he's saying, if you put that to death, you live. Now, here's what some of you are probably thinking. See, Rick, I knew this. You keep talking about all this free grace stuff, and I knew it was a load of bunk. Because Paul just said, if I do good, I live, and if I don't, I die. Right? Here's the problem. Paul is more careful than that. What he says is hinged. There's a fulcrum in this contrast, and it's the phrase, by the Spirit. Okay? Paul isn't saying, get yourself clean and you're going to avoid judgment. That's not what he's saying at all. When he says, by the Spirit, you're putting to death these things, by the Spirit is instrumental. That means that whatever this putting to death of these deeds of the flesh, or these practices of the body is, it cannot be done without the Spirit of God. If we don't have the Spirit, we can't do it. And that Spirit, as we saw, Paul says, that Spirit is not earned, it's received. It's received. And that is why he says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He is saying, quite clearly, that there is a family resemblance. Being a part of the family of God has a certain resemblance to it. If you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus, then the Spirit of God, the very third person of the Trinity, you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit lives in you. And if God the Holy Spirit lives in you, then you have been saved not just from sin's penalty, as if all that Christianity was about was like getting out of judgment in the by and by. You've been delivered not just from sin's penalty, but from its power. From its power here and now. And that means you can change. Not just can, you must. That's Paul's point. It is those led by the Spirit that are sons, not just those who talk about it. So let's be clear on this with, with heeding and following, okay? We need to understand that when Paul says this, this is a warning for us. And when I say us, I mean those who would call themselves Christians, or at least those who say, I'm, I'm good with God. Me and God, we're, we're tight, okay? This is a warning to us. Paul is telling us that if you actually trust in Jesus, your life will change, it will change. Christian theology, in Christian theology we call this sanctification. Okay? Sanctification, being made more like Jesus. It is a process, yes. It is through the Spirit and by grace, yes. 
but it is necessary. It is necessary. And so we need to heed this warning, friends. We must, through dependence on the Spirit, be putting to death those practices which are independent of God. Whether those practices have to do with the, the use of our sexuality, or the, our chasing after the middle class dream, or our refusal to allow the Bible to be the authority in our lives. It is those who are led by the Spirit, Paul says, who are children of God. Not just those who talk about it. But listen close, here's the thing. Being led by the Spirit doesn't just mean being moral. That would be the easy part. If, that, if that's all it were, then we'd all be good. Because we'd all be like, I can do that. I can do behavioral shift. Or at least I can shift my behaviors enough so y'all can't tell. Right? I, can, I can do that. But that's not just what being led by the Spirit means. It means being led into those things that the Spirit does. It means growing in our affection for God. Growing in our affections for him, wanting more of him as the Spirit led Jesus in. It means growing in our hunger for God and for doing his will. As, as Jesus told his disciples, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. It means loving what God loves, hating what he hates, including the perishing of sinners. That is what it means to be led by the Spirit. It just doesn't just mean, uh, I stopped cussing last week, I must be led by the Spirit. It means, like... Like, your heart is growing for a desire for him, a hunger for him, a wanting to be more like him and to see others know him, a desire to see his fame lifted up because as Jesus said, as he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. That is what it means to be led by the Spirit. But lest we forget why we do these things, because look, as soon as I say that, I know that like two-thirds of us in this room begin going... Okay, so if I do this, God likes me. No, listen, here's the way this works. If you, let's pretend you're an orphan. And you have, you are completely alienated from human relationship. And someone comes into your life, initiates with you, and adopts you into their family. You're now part of their family. How do you feel towards them? You're going to feel gratitude, right? Probably a little, probably a desire to, to want to be like them. Let's up the stakes. You're not just an orphan. You're a slave. You are the property of another person. And someone comes with their vast amount of wealth. And not only do they buy you and free you and say you are free. But then they say, not only are you free, but I'm going to make you the heir to all this wealth. This is now all yours. How do you feel about that person? It's like, man, that's an amazing person. Can I be like them? Let's raise the stakes even more. Let's pretend you are a rebel. And the king bring, you have been caught and the king brings you into his throne room. And instead of rightly executing you for treason, dude puts a crown on your head, a robe on your shoulders and says, you are now the rightful heir to my entire kingdom. How do you, that is what God has done. Look, you do not bear the resemblance of the family to get in as if God's going, who looks like me? You, you know, I mean, I got a couple in that row right there that look a lot like me. And I'm like, that one looks like me. They're now my child. No, they look like me because they're my kids. That's the way this works. You don't bear the resemblance to get into the family. You seek to bear the resemblance because you know it is crazy, crazy that he would bring you into the family in the first place. And it is only because of him that you can bear it at all. That's a relationship and an obligation. Now let's look at an assurance. Look down at verses 16 and 17 to see the witness of adoption. Paul says, 
The Spirit, of him, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him, so we might glor- be glorified with him. Okay? First, let's look at this bearing witness thing. To get at this, you have to understand a little part of the Old Testament. Okay? Several folks in our congregation have uh, adopted kids before, and they know this. I-, I hope all of us know this. Adoption is not a relational thing, purely. Okay? Adoptions don't happen in living rooms. Adoptions happen in courtrooms. And in the Old Testament, if you're going to be in a courtroom, if anything is going to hold up in court in the Old Testament, it needs at least two witnesses. That's what this is about. It's about two witnesses. Okay? The Spirit bearing witness and us bearing witness. In other words, this is about, okay, how do we know it's true? How do we know it's true? If, if someone were to bring me into court and say, you're not really adopted, who's going to be a witness on my behalf? Okay? Now, so that's what this is about. But there's another part that may help with this, and that's this strange, random mention of suffering. Right? Listen, if you do believe yourself to be a child of God, what is the last thing you think should happen to you? Suffering. Why, if you are God's child, God, omnipotent, all-powerful, knowing all, like, why would you suffer if you're his child? I mean, the Son of God, the heir of all things, wouldn't actually suffer, right? So that's the whole point here. For Jesus, being led by the Spirit, ran him into suffering. And if it was true for Jesus, why would we think it wouldn't be true of us? That is, in fact, part of the family resemblance. Suffering for the sake of others. It isn't a, it isn't a sign that you're an orphan any more than it was for Jesus. That suddenly he's an orphan because he's suffering. That's what people thought. That's what they called out to him on the cross. If you really are the Son of God, come down. If you really are God's Messiah, come down. That's what Satan said to him in the wilderness. If you really are God's Son, Eat. God wouldn't want you to be hungry. If you really are God's son, like, take a leap off the, off the temple. God wouldn't do anything to harm you. If you are God's son, come and take these kingdoms and you don't have to suffer at all for them. It's not about being an orphan. It is in that moment when everything hits the fan and we see where we turn that much of this is proven, okay? And listen, we... If you've been a Christian a while and you've heard this stuff and you've talked about Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, and all this stuff, okay? Like, you've, you've probably, we, we missed this. When is it that we heard Jesus mutter the words Abba? It wasn't when ministry was going great. It wasn't when he was perusing Galilee, making bread appear and fish and healing people and demons are screaming and going, How, what have you to do with me? And running away and he's ch- walking on the water. That is not when Jesus said Abba. It was when he was in Gethsemane on his knees, sweating blood in his greatest hour of trial. In Jesus' hour of trial, he rested on his dad. That is what this is about. We cry out, Abba. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God in our hour of trial. So that as we suffer with Jesus, we will also be glorified with him. Now, let me apply this point for us real quick to conclude us. Paul says the Spirit bears witness that we are children of God as we cry out to our dead when we, when we suffer. Let me ask you something, okay? 
If you consider yourself a Christian here this morning, not everybody is, but if you consider yourself a Christian, when you experience hardship, trial, actual suffering, my guess is there's not a ton of us who actually have suffered in the way that the Bible often describes it. But when you experience hardship and trial, to whom do you run? Who do you cry out for? Do you cry out to dad or is it someone else? Because maybe it's not. Maybe instead for you, it's you cry out to your boss and you're like, you are the worst boss ever. I didn't earn this. Do you see what's happening to me? I, I worked hard and I don't deserve this. Maybe it's not your boss. Maybe it's you, you are a dictator. How dare you do this to me? You are wicked. I deserve better. I deserve better than this. Or instead, do you cry, Dad, help me? Dad, why? Dad, don't leave me. Listen to me. We are so so prone to self-deception. The Bible tells us that none of us, on our own, without the Spirit of God, can honestly, truthfully, and with all of our hearts say, Jesus is Lord. Just not possible can't claim God's lordship unless the spirit of God is working in you. In the same way, Paul says, this kind of cry comes from the spirit. If you yourself, if you find yourself crying boss or dictator, friend, I think Paul would would advise you, and I will right now, you need to seriously wrestle with whether you actually have the spirit of God. And in the same way, if you are struggling this morning, if you are struggling here this morning and you are going through trial and you are going through hardship, but your cry has been dead, can I tell you, the Spirit is at work in your life. Be assured, this cannot come from you. It cannot. Struggle and suffering and trial reveal what is in our hearts. Trials and struggles do not create something. They reveal it. They reveal what is there. And so if, if you're crying out dead, then no matter what your circumstances are, can I tell you, it is the spirit that is working in you. But that crying out uh, leads us to think about mess, right? Because every Christian in this room knows that their life is not a pretty little picture of steady, gradual increase in growth and grace, right? I'm doing great and everything's great. If you've been led to believe that becoming a Christian will make your life good and progressively better and better and better, you have, bought, you have been sold a false bill of sales, okay? And uh, that is just not the way it is. Life is messy. Think with me on this, okay? Uh, Jason uh, prayed earlier about uh, new parents. We got, we got lots of... Lot, we, they come in waves here at Holy Cross. If you're here long enough, you'll see them. The next wave is coming, and it's starting to crash here pretty soon of babies. Uh, and you know, it's like, if you've been a parent, you know that if, when you have a newborn, and you take that newborn, and you try and imbibe in them all of your values, how we do things in our family, how, how we eat, the, the routine that we do, the way that mom and dad value things, this is what we do, you know that it is not the cleanest experience of your life. They mess up all the time. They don't get things right. They push against those values. I don't want those. I want these. And you're going, you're going to do these. And like, so, okay. But here's the thing. Those are the only values they've ever known. Imagine if instead of bringing a newborn into the world, you adopted an adult. 
And you tried to have the same expectation on them. We're going to, this is the way we do things in our family. These are the values that we have. This is the way we do the dinner routine. And oh, by the way, you, like, you brush your teeth wrong. You got to do it this way and then up and down. And then like, it is going to be the same, right? It'll be messy too, right? Except that they have a lifetime of other values that they simply assume that they have been brought up in. So how messy will that be? That is our life, friends. We don't change in a day. Sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, is a process. It is not an event. I know sometimes we, we've been bought into thinking that Jesus is going to come on the scene. He's going to boom, and suddenly we're like, woo, I'm good now. And I don't, I don't need grace anymore. I'm fine. Like, that is a lie. It is a process. Change is a process, but we do change by God's grace. And that is Paul's ultimate comfort here. By the Spirit of God, we do put to death the deeds of the flesh to take on the family resemblance. We suffer, we struggle, we cry out, and we cry out knowing that if all this happens, if all this is going on, if we, if we do struggle and cry out, Abba, that, that in fact we will be glorified with Jesus. That a day will come when all of that struggle and all of that trial is put to rest and then all we have is perfect intimacy with God in a world made new. That is the hope of the gospel. And in none of it is because of the great place we've earned, but because of the great place we've received through our Savior Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time we just ask that you would press these truths into our hearts Some of my friends here this morning, Lord, they are uh, struggling because they do cry out boss. They cry out dictator. They cry out something other than dad. Uh, And they've thought they're serving you. And in fact, they're not. And I pray this morning that you you would open their eyes to that and that you would give them faith and they would turn and they would find a welcome reception in your arms because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. For others of us, we're clinging to the gospel with our fingernails and we're going, why is this going on? I must not be a child. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the confidence to see that just as Jesus suffered, and it did not mean that he was an orphan, that as we follow him, we will do likewise. And that, in fact, our cry to our Father is proof. The Spirit is bearing witness with our spirits that we are children of God. I pray for perseverance for those who are struggling today. And those who are, who are wandering into an hour of trial, I pray that you would, you would um, hold them fast because their grip will loosen. And Lord, I pray for this church that as a, as a body, we would bear the family resemblance, not just of good people, but those whose hearts are full of affection for God. And, and Lord, uh, people whose hearts are full of passion to see our city made new and more and more people come into the family. This is all we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.